Hello and welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Pete and Jason from Squeaky Pedal. For the past 12 months we've been working on a documentary which hopes to tell the unknown story of the Unknown Warrior. Through our research we've met historians, we've uncovered brand new documentation and as we approach the 100th anniversary of the unveiling of the Unknown Warrior in Westminster Abbey, this podcast will allow you an insight into this amazing new research. We'll speak to the historians who carried the research out. We'll join us on this podcast as we uncover the remarkable stories behind the Unknown Warrior. Yeah, so we started off, we wanted to make a documentary just about the the story as we thought we as we thought it was known about the Unknown Warrior. But it turns out there's many mysteries and many things that are wrong and many things that are conjecture and many things that no one will ever know, I guess. So we started on the, on our path to research, didn't we, Jason? Kind of we we thought we knew the story, and then it turned out we didn't, <laughs> as we went on. But just for kind of the benefit of everyone and for and for us, kind of what's the give us the kind of tale of the unknown warrior? What is it and how it came to be? And kind of give us the give us the overview of that. Yeah, I think it was significant for us really at the end of what has been four years of commemoration for the First World War to look for something that kind of sought to sum all of that loss and commemoration up into one specific thing and obviously the unknown warrior was created to be a symbol of remembrance a symbol of 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 reconciliation really of healing to bring together everybody within a nation that suffered four years of war unprecedented losses not seen by britain in recent times and I think the nature of the loss was difficult to comprehend to people, not only the numbers of killed, but also the fact that you weren't able to necessarily go and see a marked grave of your fallen loved one. So if we think about the First World War, prior to that, Britain had never looked really to bury and mark individual soldiers' graves. There had been monuments to soldiers who'd fallen... They'd always tended to be buried together, but there was never that commemoration. But the First World War... The... Why, why was that? Why, why was that not happened before the First World War? What, what changed in that? I think it's a sea change, really, in just attitudes towards loss, towards serving your country. Um, it become more personal kind of thing, was it? So I think it's important to note kind of how the soldier was perceived before the First World War. So there's a famous poem by Rudyard Kipling called Tommy, um, and it shows the the way basically that the soldier talks about the the respectful way that he's treated when he's needed to fight a war, but then when there isn't a war, he receives pretty poor treatment. Um, and there's a famous line where it says, "It's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy go away, but it's thank you, Mr. Atkins, when the band begins to play." And there was a there was a sort of an attitude really that that soldiers were kind of the you know the the ruffians they were sort of yeah you got you got them in to do a job and then that was it and then yeah they served their purpose that's it the people who tended to join the army were kind of from the lower echelons of society so there was a snobbery there with regards to who soldiers were mm. and that they were doing a job that they'd signed up to and if they got killed well you know Tough. that was to, well you <laughs> know that was the job they'd signed up <laughs> that's for it, yeah I think that the first the first time that that kind of started to change was was sort of the Crimean War and you know, when the, the Victoria Cross comes into play and medals are started to be awarded now, people are seeing that these, these people are serving what's becoming the empire. So, um, you know, that there's there's kind of a, a sea-changing attitude there, a, a sort of a, a nationalism, 
uh, a Britishness, a pride in the armed forces rather than seeing them as this kind of tool like, that's used to do a job. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that not, grows... like, just seen as like a mercenary kind of, well, just let them do their thing and then we'll... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. They're, a, they're a blunt instrument, shall yeah, we say, it, yeah. yeah. The First World War, though, is different because the standing army is 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 almost wiped out within the first few months of the conflict, trying to hold the line against the German advance and protect Paris, the old contemptibles, as they were known. So all of a sudden now you need a new army and you need volunteers. And so you... you Kitchener's army is created, this, this army of volunteers, and then later on that's not enough so you need conscription so a lot of these people um, didn't really have a choice or they they were sort of it wouldn't have been their natural choice to go in the army but they felt like they had to go in and do their duty this was about protecting protecting britain protecting the empire protecting um protecting moral values it was seen as uh, as a society and so these guys weren't your traditional soldiers they were they were people from all walks of life in a in a citizen army that was there to protect uh to protect britain and all of a sudden this citizen army suffers horrendous losses to which britain had never really seen before um and as attitudes changed to soldiers it also changed to the losses so you've got for the first time artillery dominates the battlefield um it becomes a bogged down defensive conflict because of the nature of the weapons, machine guns, artillery. You can't move on the battlefield as you once did in the Napoleonic Wars. The the weaponry just doesn't allow you to do that. And so it's about protecting yourselves. It's about hunkering down. It's about looking for any cover you can get. As, as, the, as the war descends into trench warfare, and like I said, artillery dominates the battlefield. You've got soldiers being blown to bits where there is absolutely nothing left or soldiers being injured in a way that 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 basically means that you can't identify who they are um, because the battle is concentrated on such a small area as, as casualties uh, are killed on the battlefield they're buried but then an artillery bombardment can come in the line can shift just so slightly um, rain can come in as the mud of Flanders as we know and wash away and destroy these graves so the soldiers then graves are then lost basically yeah, yeah. to battle to everything else and the other thing to point out as well is the fact that at the beginning of the war soldiers are initially only issued with a single aluminium identification disc so if a soldier is killed and his comrades remove his identity disc to confirm his death at headquarters, that dead soldier is now potentially devoid of anything that could identify him should his body be discovered in the future. Aluminium is required for the war effort and so vulcanised asbestos fibre discs are introduced. But it's not actually until the end of 1916 that the British Army formally issues soldiers with two identity discs so that one would specifically remain with the body after death. And so that creates all of a sudden a huge number the nature of the warfare, the fact that graveyards are being destroyed and the fact that bodies aren't being recorded all of a sudden creates the unknown, the vast numbers of, of unknown soldiers that we that we see. Um, and if you go to Val or to Ypres, you will see tens of thousands of soldiers listed on those memorials that have no known grave. Yeah, yeah. And it is an incredibly poignant and powerful, powerful thing to see. And that had never happened before. So we've got these, you know, like you say, colossal kind of losses, and how does that, how does that manifest itself then into, kind of, the need, the need to create this international symbol of remembrance as we know it, as we know it now. Then, 
I think it's important to note as well that bodies were not being repatriated. So a handful of, of officers were repatriated at the start of the, of the war. But after then, it was it was government policy to keep the soldiers buried in the country where they'd fallen. So that could be Mesopotamia. It could be Flanders. So if you're the family of, uh, of a soldier who's been killed, even if he has a grave, you probably haven't got the means to be able to go and view that grave anyway, even if it's marked, because it's in a completely different country. So all of a sudden, you need symbols to be able to pay your respects at for for you to be able to go and mourn your, you know, your loved one. So obviously that's where war memorials all start and start to pop up, both in workplaces and at churches and in towns and villages all over Britain. Um, but then you've got the unknowns. And an amazing guy called uh, the Reverend David Railton, MC. The story goes that he's, as he tells it, is he was a padre during the First World War, an incredibly brave guy, won the military cross for bravery uh, on the battlefield. So he certainly wasn't somebody, you know, who's behind the lines, who didn't know what it was like for the soldiers who were in action. Yeah, he saw it all, saw the blood and the, you know. He saw it firsthand, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And he, and he presided over an awful lot of uh, burials as a minister so obviously he's seen that death firsthand so the idea came to railton basically he wrote about this in 1931 in an article called the origin of the unknown warrior's grave and he basically describes precisely how it came to him in the garden of a billet that he was sharing with his friend the reverend edward duncan mc in early 1916 in france and basically he says that the sight of a white cross which was listed as an unknown British soldier, inspired him to try and get the body of an unknown soldier back home to be buried in Westminster Abbey. So basically he, he kept this thought, this idea that he had, until 1920, when all of a sudden his his wife encouraged him basically to, to do something about it. He felt that the time was right now, at the end of the war, when Britain was was struggling to come to terms with what had just happened, um, to have this symbol of, of remembrance. So on the 13th of August 1920, he writes to the Dean of Westminster, Herbert Ryle, from his home and, and basically explains this idea that he wants this body to represent everybody, for it to be an unknown, for it to to basically, it could be somebody from the lowest of the land, it could be somebody from the highest of the land, it could be an officer, it could be an ordinary soldier, it could be anybody, and it represents every soldier that fought. The Dean of Westminster writes back and says, actually, I believe this is a brilliant idea. And it's then passed on to the authorities, to the military. They basically decide that this is a fantastic idea. So in November 1920, orders are then given for four bodies. The bodies of four unknown British soldiers uh, are to be brought from four different battlefields across France and Flanders to the British military headquarters at a place called St. Paul. Burial parties are sent out to gather these bodies. They bring them to St. Paul. They all arrive at different times. None of the burial parties know whereabouts the other burial parties are going. It's all done under complete secrecy in order to keep that unknown element. The only requirements are that the body must be British and it must be unidentifiable. The bodies are brought to the military headquarters at St. Paul. They put the bodies in a hut in the centre of St. Paul in the, in the military camp. Whilst there, they're under armed guard. They arrive at different times so that no one knows who's brought what body. They're placed on trestle tables with the Union flag across them. And at midnight, the officer commanding British forces, a guy called Brigadier General Wyatt, goes in and selects one of those bodies. That body then becomes the unknown warrior. It's placed into a coffin. It's transferred then to Boulogne, 
where it lies in a chapel ardent, which is a special privilege given by the French to, to the body to honour it. It's then conveyed across on the 10th of November aboard the British destroyer HMS Verdun. It arrives in Dover. It's then carried in a special wagon, the Cavell van, that uh, had carried the bodies of Edith Cavell and, and Captain uh, Fryer. The van still exists. It's actually on the Kent and East Sussex Railway. The van then has has the, the coffin inside. It's under armed guard. Takes it to Victoria Station. It lies in Victoria Station over the night of the 10th into the 11th. And on the 11th of November, it's then conveyed in a huge funeral procession through to Westminster Abbey. Um, to, and it coincides with the opening of the cenotaph. So the cenotaph is unveiled as it is today, the stone cenotaph on November the 11th, 1920. And on the same day, the body is then brought to Westminster Abbey and it's buried with great pomp and circumstance. The king's there, all in the greater good are there. Um, and a hundred VC winners um, line the the aisles, basically, as a guard of honour to, uh, to for this un for this unknown soldier. It becomes a symbol. A million people come to see it in the first week, which is an which is an unprecedented number of people if you think about it at that time coming to see this this coffin, um, and it becomes a symbol of of remembrance. And it and it's and it works because it genuinely could be anybody. It could be from the highest of the land. It could be from the lowest of the land. It could be an officer. It could be a humble private. It could be anybody from the services as well. So if your son died and you had no known grave to go to and to, to mourn him, you could go to Westminster Abbey and stand by the unknown warrior and you could say that could be my boy. And that's why it becomes such a unique symbol of remembrance. And it's copied across the world. France has got an unknown warrior, uh, which is below the Arc de Triomphe. America's got four, I think, unknown warriors. Um, it becomes a symbol of, of, of remembrance and reconciliation. Um, and... And and it's and it's and it's an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. So as you, as you say, Jess, it came in this became this international kind of symbol, and people travel from all over the country. You know, when it was um, you know in, in the like you say in the first weeks, you know, a million people came, and people almost you know it was there's stories of people that week, isn't there? Like you know, staying there because they they were convinced it was their son and things like that, and it just became you know a incredibly powerful kind of you know personal connection to everyone which is you know exactly the point of it um but in that kind of uh short pricey that uh that you just gave there there's obviously there's minutiae and detail that kind of there's a lot of conjecture over certain things again which we'll kind of get into with various different people over the over the coming podcast but there's a lot of kind of conjecture and mystery kind of involved in the story isn't there like you say it's kind of it was all done under top secret in the dead of night so no one knew quite what was going on everyone knew their bit of the process of selecting the bodies and all that kind of thing but no one knew the whole truth and it's only kind of now that all that kind of has come out you know in the in the past you know kind of few months really um, but it's you know that was as you say that what that's what makes it kind of such an intriguing thing that you think you know the story as we did when we started on this kind of unknown warrior research process to create a documentary about it, we thought we knew the story because it was like, okay, well, that makes sense. All oh, that happened, jobs are good. And then as you delve in further, you go, okay, well, this, this seems, it doesn't quite link up with this fact and this fact also doesn't link up. And okay, this person couldn't have been here and there at the same time. 
So it's a real bit of a mind bender, isn't it? Going through this research process, kind of figure out where the where the similarities between different people's stories lie and how that all links up and how you end up as to where we are now with a kind of a the correct timeline of events as it were i think this we've met at, we've met quite a few historians on this journey and i think that mm. you're absolutely right that the nature so in order to create a genuinely unknown warrior somebody who cannot be identified there has to be a secret operation behind it it has to be yeah, yeah. coordinated it has to be carefully planned and in its in its nature as an unknown warrior there is an air of mystery around it that's why it works and obviously the thing there is the most important thing there is that that mystery that mystique that every man unknown nature about it cannot be broken because if it is broken then it loses its power to connect with people in the same way um one thing that we have really discovered about this throughout this is how utterly amazing this this secret operation was you know it was created with within weeks basically yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's and although we found an awful lot of information out about the unknown warrior i think it's important to state straight away that none of it impacts the body that currently lies in westminster abbey yeah that is a that is a mystery that will never be solved and doesn't need to be no one wants it to be Exactly. And I think it's important to state that none of this research is about trying to uncover who he is, where he came from, or any of the details around that, because that body is, is sacred because of its unknown nature. And even though we've discovered many different pieces of information, I think that a lot of the discoveries are about, first of all, dispelling some myths that have, that have been mm. created about it. Um, but also that celebrate the amazing men and women who work behind the scenes to create this international symbol of remembrance, who many of them never spoke about this. You know, those people created this symbol that comforted and supported millions of people across the country. So bringing to light their contributions and how they did it and what they did, I think is incredibly poignant because all it does is, I think, give you a, a greater respect and understanding for just how special the unknown warrior is and what it meant to those people who created it at that time yeah a lot of the mysteries that you were talking about basically come from the definitive account of the unknown warrior was was basically taken from a letter that brigadier general wyatt wrote to the daily telegraph in 1939 now he wrote that in response to a number of different people coming out and saying things about the unknown warrior that he wasn't happy about um, people have tried to either uncover the identity of the unknown warrior or certainly say that they were involved in it for for years this isn't this isn't a new thing this was happening between the wars um, and it's continued to happen since and Wyatt's letter was written and he says at the top of the letter he says I should like to give here the authentic account of what took place and in that letter, he basically says exactly what he did. So the fact that he was officer commanded in France of Flanders, the fact that he was asked to choose the bodies in St. Paul, and then what happened with the bodies afterwards. And the issue is that he states in this letter that they were chosen on the night of November 7th, 8th. And immediately, <laughs> this date has become an issue. And that is just the first of many issues which we'll uncover within this within this podcast so um 
I think it's important to note that we came from this at a point, as, as you said, Pete, of an accepted narrative. What we've done is hoped to improve on that narrative <laughs> and provide the act, the true narrative. And hopefully what you'll you'll hear in this podcast is, is the new research that will improve understanding into how the operation was carried out, the dates that the operation was actually carried out, and also some remarkable new information into what happened to those other bodies that weren't selected. Because I think it's important to note there that no one really knew what happened to them. And they played just as important a role in the creation of the Unknown Warrior as the body that lies in Westminster Abbey. Without them, the mystique of the Unknown Warrior couldn't have been created. And they served their country both in life and in death. And there's some incredible new information and a secret document related to those, which I think people will find utterly fascinating. Um, we worked on that with the author Mark Scott, um, and we'll go into detail as to how and why that letter is important uh, later on in the series. We hope to basically highlight the unknown stories of the Unknown Warrior and really help people appreciate just why this operation and this body that lies in Westminster Abbey is so important to the nation and to history. We should say as well as as, as well as um, as well as the historians and all this new evidence and got we've also got some personal kind of family connections relatives of some of the people we've mentioned so lots more to come and more episodes to follow